As you're grabbing your seats, go ahead, grab your Bibles, and open up to Romans chapter 9. And uh, I, uh, I want to just start out by saying that these next few chapters, Romans 9 through 11, they're all about um, Israel, they're all about uh, God's sovereignty, and they're all about the doctrine of election. And as I say that, I know that many of you are very interested to hear what we're going to say about these things. And I can just, I want to just maybe preface everything I'm going to say over the next a handful of weeks as we go through chapters 9 through 11. I want to preface it by saying this. I understand that the, the topic of election and God's sovereignty and human responsibility, all of these things are filled with a, a lot of confusion. For some people, it's filled with a lot of great concern. For some people, it produces a lot of frustration and a lot of anger. And, and I can just tell you, I want to speak to this personally for a moment. I can tell you that my journey in understanding this doctrine didn't happen overnight. My understanding of, of this doctrine um, wasn't crystallized in, in one moment at one point in time. It was a journey for me. And so I just say that to say that I think that we need to have a lot of grace and a lot of charity, and I think people may end up on, on different um, perspectives on these doctrines, and so it requires a lot of charity and kindness and grace towards one another, but I also want to say that the Word of God has a lot to say to us about this doctrine. The doctrine of election is mentioned 50 times, referenced 50 times directly in the New Testament. So the question in many senses is not do you have a doctrine of election? If you are a Christian, you must have a doctrine of election because it's in the Scriptures. The question you need to ask is, what is my doctrine of election, and how does it align with God's Word? The other important thing to say out the gates is this. When Paul speaks about this doctrine of divine election or divine choosing, he doesn't discuss this doctrine in order to start debates. This is really important. He discusses it in order to end debates. And the purpose, the ultimate goal of understanding this doctrine is not simply um, intellectual stimulation. It's not so that we can win arguments about these doctrines. If you go all the way like we did last week to the very end of chapter 11, you see that the very purpose in understanding this doctrine is to elicit greater praise from our hearts, which is exactly what it does in the heart of the Apostle Paul. So listen, if your doctrine of election doesn't bring forth an eruption of praise to God, then you have an inadequate and insufficient doctrine of election according to the Apostle Paul. So my goal through all of this is not just to inform your mind, although that's what we want to do, it is to inform your praise. It is to stir the affections of your heart, and that's what I've been praying all week for, for me and for you, that God would use even this passage to do just that. So let's dive in. I want to begin at verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm going to read all the way to verse 13. Let me just say this too. We're not going to tackle every single issue related to the doctrine of election today. So if you've got questions, you're going to have to hang on. If I don't answer something, be patient. We're going to deal with what's in this text this morning, and there's lots more to come. Paul writes these words in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls." She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is answering here a very important question that has been stirred up by the previous eight chapters of him preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has laid out the gospel, and he's gone after both Jews and Gentiles to show them that everybody is equally guilty before God, and everybody is equally unable to accomplish their own salvation. He's gone to great lengths to prove that for the first, through the first three chapters of the book of Romans, and then he's attacked specifically some of the Jewish understandings of what it means to be the people of God, and what it means to truly be saved. And he's laid out this reality already that though the Jews were privileged and they they had so much access, so much light, so to speak, to see God, to embrace Jesus Christ, they didn't. Paul has said there's only one way to get to God. There's only one way to be saved, and, and it's not by earning a righteousness for yourself. It's by accepting a righteousness that must be credited to you, it must be given to you, from God, and it comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And and as he's kind of dismantled, especially a lot of the Jewish understanding of salvation, the natural question that's left is found here in verse 6. And it boils down to this. Has God failed? Is God really faithful? Those who were supposed to be in the people of God seem to be out. And those who seem to be out of the people of God seem to be in. And so there is this massive crisis that Paul wants to address. In the Old Testament, it seemed that God had made so many promises of salvation to the nation of Israel. But as Paul looks around him, as we saw last week, one of the things that he is pointing out, not only to the Gentiles in the church, but to the Jews, is that most of the Jews, 
who are hearing the gospel reject the good news of Jesus Christ. They're hardened to the gospel. And so he wants to make it clear, does this gospel that I have laid out for eight chapters somehow violate God's promise to Israel if the majority of Jews are accursed or damned? You say, well, why, why does this matter to me? Why does this matter to us as the New Testament church? Keep in mind, Paul is writing to the New Testament church, so it matters deeply. And here's why it matters to me and to you. Because if this accusation is correct, then it means at least two things. First, it calls into question the very character of God. If God's plans for Israel have not come to fruition, then God's word is not reliable. The second thing is this, that if the promises to them have not been kept, consider this, Christian, if the promises to Israel have not been kept, what confidence can we have that the promises God has made to us will be kept? What confidence can we have in Romans chapter 8 where God says, God promises that there is therefore now no condemnation, where God promises that there is now no separation, right, for those who are called according to His purpose? How can we actually have confidence that that is true? Can I trust God? That's what it comes down to. Paul is going to show us that, yes, we can trust God because God is faithful to His promise. But He wants to help us understand the very nature of this promise because the issue is not whether God's promise has failed. The real issue is this. Do we rightly understand the promise that God has made? And the promise of God, here's what we're going to find out, three things. The promise of God, it, it is greater, it surpasses, it transcends, let me use this word, it exceeds human expectation, it exceeds human exertion, and it exceeds human election. That's what we're going to pull apart right now. And we're going to begin with this idea of the promise of God exceeds human expectation. You see, we often find fault with God because of our own misunderstandings, because we have the wrong expectations. So we hold God to something that we have misunderstood, that we have essentially invented. The expectation that clearly raises the question in his mind is that all, this is what he's trying to deal with, that all ethnic Israel should be saved automatically. And this flows right out of verses 4 and 5 where he's listed these unbelievable privileges that were given to ethnic national Israel. I mean, we just read them and we looked at them briefly last week, but he's given them so very much. And I love how when Paul goes through these things, by the way, you know, they, 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 to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and according to the race, even from the flesh, is the Christ. And then he just kind of, do you notice this? He just bursts out into praise. Like, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. I love that. And this is a, a little bit of a side note, but one preacher said it like this, any true preaching of the gospel should be interrupted by worship. 
Let me say that again. Any true preaching of the gospel should be interrupted by worship. And that, that just gives you some liberty, by the way, for your own heart as you are hearing the gospel, as you are hearing the gospel preached, and we start talking about the, the miracle of salvation and the gift of God's grace, that God would come in the flesh, that God would pay for our sins. He would rise from the grave victorious over sin and death. And right now, our Savior is alive and seated at the right hand of God. You have permission to say, hallelujah, amen. Now back to the point. So Paul does it, we can do it. Ethnic Israel was privileged and that makes their unbelief even more problematic. They rejected Jesus. The vast majority rejected Jesus because they had the wrong expectation of the Messiah. They had the wrong expectation of their own privileges that they had been given. They they had this framework in their mind. We are Israel. We have privileges. Therefore, that equals saved. Many lived in this place. Look at what we've been given. Therefore, it must mean we are saved. And Paul answers this wrong expectation of ethnic Israel being explained, or saved, excuse me, by explaining the reality of two Israels. There's a physical Israel, and there is a spiritual Israel. Look at what he says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There it is. Two Israels. He expands. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not everyone who had the privileges of the people of God, listen, belonged to the people of God. The nation of Israel is not the same thing as God's chosen people. Let me say that again. This is very, very important to see Paul making this argument. The nation of Israel is not the same thing as God's chosen people. There is and has always been a difference between the nation of Israel and God's true people. That's what he's saying in verse 6 and 7. By the way, Paul has already made this argument in the book of Romans. Do you remember back in Romans chapter 2? I'll throw it back up on the the slide here. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. I believe it's there. There it is. Look at what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. He's talking about the physical, look. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, Paul's already been making this argument. It has never been simply about your ethnic identity. Now listen, let let me hasten to add this. God is not done with ethnic Israelites. Paul himself is an example of that. So are all of the disciples, the apostles. And he's going to come back and talk more about this, so you're going to have to hang on a little bit and wait till we get to chapter 11 in particular. It's going to be a while, just so you know. 
God is not done with ethnic Israelites, but he denies that all ethnic Israel is automatically saved. That's the key idea here. It is not a birthright, but a calling. Not all Israel, he says, and when we say, here's how you can categorize this. Not all Israel, physical, okay, is Israel spiritual. That's what he's communicating. In verse 7 and 9, he now begins to prove his point. And he wants to begin to do that by beginning at the beginning of the people of God. So he says it like this, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, there it is again, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Again, Paul has already addressed this. You can go back and read Romans chapter 4, but let me remind you of the promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. He's pulling us back into the beginning of the people of God where God made a promise to bless this man, Abraham. He promised to bless him that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He promised him land. And look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, 4 verse 13. He refers to this promise And he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir, listen to this language, of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the question here is this, who are Abraham's true offspring? Who is spiritual Israel, if I can use that language? To whom has God promised the world? That's the real question. To whom has God promised the world? By the way, that language of promising him the world is the way that Abraham understood the land promise that was given to him back in Genesis 12 and 15. He understood the nature of the land promise pointing to the greater, listen, inheritance of the entire earth that would one day be filled with the glory of God from sea to sea, from coast to coast, where Jesus Christ would rule and reign physically upon the earth. That's what he's talking about here. And he uses two examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. First, he goes back to Abraham and he talks about Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. God made a promise to Abraham. You are going to have a son and and through your seed, through this child, you are going to be made a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. By the way, in Galatians, Paul says that this seed ultimately refers to seed singular, Jesus Christ. He says that the final fulfillment of this promise to Abraham is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment, listen, of everything God ever promised to Israel. And he goes to Abraham because he needs us to understand that there is a difference between the destinies of Abraham's two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Only one of them is the son of the promise. Both of them are physical descendants, but only one is a spiritual descendant. 
It is never stated in the Scriptures that every physical descendant would be a recipient of that promise made to Abraham. We know the story, and maybe if you're not familiar, maybe you're newer to, to Christianity or the church. In the Old Testament, we read about this story in the book of Genesis. Abraham ends up having two children. God had promised him um, a son of promise, and, uh, and it was taking a lot longer than Abraham anticipated. Besides that, Abraham and Sarah were incredibly old. So Sarah comes up with this brilliant idea. She says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, um, God's taking a little bit too long. He's promised us a son, so here's what we're going to do. Obviously, it's not happening between us. This isn't going to work. So I'm going to give you my maidservant, Hagar, and I want you to go and be with her, and then you can have the child that God had promised. And if you know the story, you know this, that the son that was born, Ishmael, was not the son of promise. He was not the son of faithfulness. He was the son of human foolishness. God would miraculously bring forth another son, the son of promise, Isaac. But both sons came from Abraham. This is what Paul is trying to prove here. Both are promised a physical lineage, but the spiritual promise of the covenant is through Isaac alone and his descendants. Ishmael was tied to Abraham through physical lineage, but Isaac, both physically and spiritually. And what we see being highlighted in verse 8 is this, that it's grace, not race, that counts when it comes to the salvation of God's people. Salvation is not a birthright. No one deserves it or has a claim on it. Any of us, listen, the only thing you have a claim on with God is His absolute justice and judgment for your sin. It's the only thing you actually deserve to get from God. But there were many in Jesus' day who thought that it was more about race than it was about grace. It was more about what God had promised to a particular ethnic group of people that made them somehow automatically right with God. Jesus is actually debating the Pharisees. is a, a, a great section in the book of John, and, and it kind of leads out with the idea that they were those who trusted in their own works, these Pharisees. They thought they could be right with God because of their own works and their physical, physical lineage. And, and in John 8... Jesus says to them, essentially, believe in me and you shall be set free. You shall be removed from bondage. And they turn around, these Pharisees, these stubborn, self-righteous Jewish Pharisees, and they look at Jesus and say, we have never been in bondage. We are the children of Abraham. Which, just on the surface, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know it's crazy. Like, Did you forget about the 400 years in Egypt? But Jesus turns and he looks at them. You know what he says to them? You are sons of the devil. You're sons of the devil, he says to them. So you think Abraham's your father? You see what he's doing? He's delineating physical ancestry and heritage and spiritual ancestry and heritage. And what he's saying is this, it doesn't matter that you are physically related to Abraham. You are, and I'm happy to acknowledge it. Your problem is this, you are spiritually related to your father, Satan. You are spiritually a follower of Satan. You have not surrendered to God. You do not believe in the truth of his word. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are in spiritual 
spiritual bondage and you must be liberated only by the grace of God. That's what he's saying. And loved ones, listen to this. Apart from the grace of God, listen, apart from the grace of God, we are all children of Satan. Do you realize that? Every one of us, apart from the grace of God, are children of Satan. It is only by grace that we can become children of the living God, that we can be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells the, the spiritual teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Again, it's not about your physical birth. You must be born of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, Jesus says, are you the, te- you, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, this is what all the scriptures was talking about. This is what they were pointed towards. You, the problem wasn't in the Word of God. The problem was with your distortion of the Word of God, your misunderstandings of the Word of God. And you see, what we find out here is that the promise of God exceeds human expectation. It transcends it. Secondly, it exceeds human exertion. Verse 9, he now pulls us back into Genesis 18 and the supernatural story of Isaac's birth. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. His point, again, is that it is, listen, God's work and God's alone, salvation. We don't make it happen through human exertion or effort. Abraham and Sarah, they tried that, didn't work. They had to see this was not dependent upon them. It was fully dependent upon God. Salvation is the result of divine initiative, of divine intervention, and divine invention, creation. He creates it by his power. And part of what God had to teach Abraham and Sarah is that God's word gives life to the dead and calls non-existent things into existence. That's chapter 4, verse 17. The whole illustration Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 is about Abraham and Sarah. God takes this dead womb, this woman who is so old, so, I mean, when we're talking about Sarah and Abraham, we're not talking about, like, maybe they're on the edge of not being able to have kids any longer, you know? We are so far past that reality. It is absolutely crazy to even think, like, can you think about your elderly grandparents talking about having a child? No, and you shouldn't, ever. And Sarah, even if you go back to the original story, Sarah is listening to the angel of the Lord tell Abraham this exact truth, this exact quote. This time next year, I'm going to return, and your wife Sarah is going to give birth to a child, and she's sitting there, she's hiding in her tent, whatever she's doing, she's sitting there, and she laughs to herself. See, you're crazy. But it's amazing because God knows what's going on. God exposes her laughter, and she tries to deny it. She's like, oh, no, I wasn't laughing. She's filled with fear. But listen, when she finally gathers herself and she has to hear from the angel, 
Do you remember what the angel said to her? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Salvation is a supernatural work of God. It is a spiritual birth that must be accomplished by God. In fact, in John, the first chapter, John 1, 12 and 13, it'll be on the screen. Listen to what John says. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I mean, it, is so, listen, it is so hard. I understand some of these truths, they kind of like, they grate against us a little bit, they confuse us, but you can, listen, you cannot deny their existence in the Bible. So often, listen, and this is so helpful for us as Christians because so often the promises of God that they seem so impossible, whether that be salvation or sanctification or our future hope, they seem impossible when we look around at our circumstances and we consider who we are and the challenges we face. When we look at our challenges and the promises of God, listen, through the lens of human ability, they seem utterly impossible. It's kind of like when the angels came alongside to Mary you know, and they told her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, and she says, how can this be? And the angel says to her, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Amen, church? Hallelujah. Everything you are called to do as a follower of Jesus Christ is possible only because of the grace of God. We are rightly humbled, aren't we, church, by our own inability to do anything? Like, apart from you, Jesus says in John 15, apart from you, we can do nothing. I mean, it humbles us, right? It levels us to the ground, but here's what it does. Listen, the reason that's so important is because it strips away every opportunity to boast. Never can we say, look at what I did, God. Never will we stand before God in his presence in all eternity. When, when God says, why should I let you in? Never will we say, because I did it. Look how smart I was. Look how wise I was. Look how insightful I was. I figured it out, and I put my faith in you forever and ever. Ever, in all eternity, our boast will be, God, look what you did for me. Look what you did for me. I didn't deserve any of this. I couldn't earn any of this. But Lord, by your grace and mercy alone, you came and sought me. You found me. You rescued me. And you have lifted me up and exalted me with you in Christ. That, that is what this doctrine does for our souls. No room for pride or boasting. Everything God calls you to do, you're able to do only because you are supplied with faith and power for obedience. It is through trust in the ability of God, not the ability of man. The promise of God exceeds human expectation. It exceeds human exertion. And finally, it exceeds human election. Look at what he says in verse 10 through 12. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. We are so used to thinking that it's all on us, right? We're just coming out of an election. Don't want to talk about it. But in an election... It's all on us. We choose. We, the people, make the decision. We, the people, make the determination. Election is about the the, the people we select to fulfill certain roles. We get the say, and, and, and especially in North America, in our, you know, democratic society, we are so used to making these kind of decisions. But when the Bible talks about the, the election of God and electing people, in this election, God is the only one who gets a vote. Let me just quickly define the doctrine of election. I know we've kind of talked around it a little bit, but let me give you just a very just kind of simple understanding of the doctrine of election. It's this, that God chooses some individuals for everlasting life, not because He saw anything good in them, but because of His mercy alone in Christ. And let me say this again, it's not meant to start debates, it's meant to end debates. The debate here, has the Word of God failed? Remember, that's the question Paul's answering. No, he says. How do we know this? How do we know that the Word of God has not failed, church? Here's Paul's answer. The doctrine of election. You can trust God. It's meant, the doctrine of election, to give you strength and encouragement. And he says, look at Isaac and Ishmael. And now look at Jacob and Esau. He pulls us in again to the descendants of Isaac, the son Jacob, and maybe some at this point were inclined to say, well, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, Isaac and Ishmael is the greatest uh, kind of illustration, Paul, because, you know, to be honest, they had different mothers. So can you really say that Ishmael is the true descendant of Abraham? I mean, he's a descendant, but he's, maybe he's not the true descendant. So, yeah, okay, well, let's, let, let's just kind of talk about this. Let's level the playing field. Let's talk for a second about Jacob and Esau. You couldn't get a more even start. That's what he's trying to say here, okay? These guys were womb mates. <laughs> they were conceived, and this is the implication of the text, by the way. The implication of the text is that they were conceived by the very same act of procreation. They had the same playing field. They started off in the exact same place at the exact same time. But the word of God, listen, only succeeded in one of those men. Which one? The one that God singled out. The older will serve the younger. Why why is that mentioned? Do you ever think about that? Because this is a reversal of what is normal and expected in the ancient culture. 
But why, why highlight that? Well, because you would expect that the older one would be the, the son of inheritance. That's the way it was in the, the ancient culture. The older one would have the rights and the privileges. The older one would be getting the, the majority share in the family, so to speak. So why does God select the younger over the older? The simple answer is this, because election was controlling things, not human beings. It is not by works, he says, not by human merits, not by human plans, not by human choices. Paul is proving that the Word of God is reliable even when it seems like it hasn't. Well, maybe it was because one was better than the other, more righteous than the other. No, Long before they'd done anything good or bad. You can't get around this, can you? Weren't even born yet. Nothing to offer. God made his decision. God made his decision. The word of God is reliable even when it seems like it isn't. And it helps us settle the confusion and, and argument here. God's people have always listened. This is so important for your own soul today. God's people have always been defined by God's choice. You realize that? Your primary definition of who you are, your identity is who you are as an individual, is defined by the fact that God chose you. Do you realize that? Not by what you've accomplished in your life, not by how successful you are, how good looking you are, or not by how much money you have, not by how good you are, by the, the standard of righteousness that you may arbitrarily set in your own mind. You are defined by the fact that God chose you. Listen, before you were ever born, for the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says, God chose you. When Peter writes to, to the church, the churches in 1 Peter, you know what he calls them? Here's how he defines them. The elect exiles of the dispersion. You know what the word elect means? Chosen. You are chosen. And you know, what, you know what, this is so helpful? Because listen, when, when it seems like exiles, when all the world seems like it's not your home, because it isn't, when all the world seems like it's against you, when all of life is bombarding you, guess what you have to hold on to? You are loved and chosen and accepted by God. That's amazing. It's utterly astounding. And do you hear what he says here? Verse 13. Because I know some of you are like, oh boy. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. As far as I know, this is no one's life verse. Most people bristle at this language, and I get it. What Paul is doing is he's quoting from the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, Paul is, he's applying the story that Malachi is developing there of Jacob and Esau to the nations that descended from them. Judah descended from Jacob, and Edom descended from Esau. And in that context, in Malachi, listen, though both were unfaithful to the Lord, God will save only Judah. 
and it is not because of anything Judah has done. They're both, they're both, they're both equally deserving of God's judgment. That's the point. We say, what does this mean? Jacob I loved and Esau like loved and hated. I mean, the truth is that some people love this verse and some people hate this verse. But here's what this means. According to the context, love and hate are not emotions felt by God, but actions carried out by God. Okay, let me say that again. According to the context, love and hate are not emotions felt by God, but are actions carried out by God. We use the term love, for example, in a variety of different ways, mainly describe emotions and feelings, which is why we have a hard time interpreting this verse. We look at it through the lens of our you know, 21st century understanding of love. It's raw emotions, it's pure feelings, but the truth is that we use the term love in a variety of different ways as well. I mean, for example, if I told you that I loved you, and then I told you that I love my wife, I promise you they do not mean the same thing. Or if I stood up here and said, like, I, I love hamburgers and I hate hot dogs. You don't think, like, that I have some kind of an emotional attachment to hamburgers and that, you know, hot dogs have somehow offended me so deeply. I just, I have such disgust. Maybe they have, maybe. But you, you get my point? The point is this. If you were to put hot dogs and hamburgers in front of me, every time, guess what I'm choosing? Hamburgers. Unless you make a really bad hamburger. You see, it has to do with preference or selection. You put both in front of me, I choose this every single time. His hatred of Esau, listen, is not an emotional hatred. It is best understood as God not intervening and leaving Esau to his own destructive devices. I want to make something very clear here. Esau did not deserve to be saved, and neither did Jacob. There is nobody, listen, who goes to hell who hasn't chosen that path. Do you realize that? God is simply leaving somebody to their own choices, to their own destructive devices. He is not divinely intervening like he does in some. God chooses some and not others. And the language, by the way, of of love and hate is seen, you know Jesus uses the the language the same way? Let let me give you an example really quickly of this as we kind of wrap wrap this up here. Here's what Jesus says in in John 14. He says this, "If, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, here it is, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I heard one disciple say, when Jesus said that, his PR guy must have been like, eh, you might want to leave that one out. Just, just stick with the bread stuff. People like the bread stuff. But, but just think about it. Jesus is not telling you to call up your mom and say, Mom, I hate you in the name of Jesus. He's saying, it's so clear, isn't it, in the context, he's saying that our love for Jesus is to be preferred above everyone and everything else. If you put Jesus and anyone or anything else in front of you, every time, which one are you supposed to choose? 
Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing can be more important than Jesus. You must love him over everything else in life, even more than your own life. This is not to say we reject human responsibility. We must not forget that Esau rejected his birthright for worldliness. God's sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. But listen, hang on. That's next week. It's a cliffhanger here, okay? You got to come back. Don't, be ang- don't walk out here angry like Ian doesn't believe we have it. We just let go and let God, right? No. But Paul's point here is that salvation is entirely a work of God's grace. He owes us nothing. We are guilty and condemned. We are not morally neutral, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. Every time you don't get what you want, remember you haven't gotten what you deserve. God's election is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Spiritual Israel finally, listen, comes through and is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the true seed of Abraham. He is the true son of David. He is the true and faithful Israelite. He fulfilled what Adam could not accomplish. He fulfilled what Israel was supposed to be and do. Not only did he do what we could not, he paid the penalty for our failure and our rebellion. And because he paid it all and fulfilled it all, all the nations, all the nations can come in so that now, listen, all who come, both Jew and Gentile, become, listen, the new people of God. We, listen, we inherit the world together with Jesus, our King. God is not bound by the failure of the world or his people. He is faithful to his word We can trust the promise of God and with certainty for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus exceeds human expectations, didn't he? Jesus exceeds human exertion. His miraculous birth, his supernatural power, his supernatural payment for sin on the cross. Jesus exceeds human election. You did not choose me, he said to his disciples, but I chose you. We were enemies and rebels with no desire and no ability to choose him. He foreknew us. He chose us. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How amazing, how amazing, church, is the grace of our God.